As we welcome 2021 and wait for many good things to happen in the new year, I want us to know one thing clearly, especially before we make a New Year's resolution. While making a New Year's resolution is a good and timely, there is something more fundamental and more imperative than making resolution. Resolution, New Year's resolution by itself, is empty and powerless. As Oscar Wilde once said, good resolution are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. Making new resolution is like writing a new check. As you know, in order to write a check, you need to have a good balance on the account first. You know, writing check itself is easy, but only and uh, only if you have a large sum of money in your checking account. Otherwise, writing check is fraudulent and even futile. Likewise, making New Year's resolution can be self-deceiving and actually defeating. Uh, how are you doing? By the way, how, how are you doing with your New Year's resolution? Mine is uh, already died <laughs> and barely resurrected by God's grace. You know, I already had uh, my first argument with my wife in 2021. We had a great start. And some of you might say, that's not new, Pastor Paul. We know you always, you know, argue. Well, it was shocking to me. Because those of you attended the New Year's Eve, Eve service, do you remember what was the message? The message of New Year's Eve service was, our God is a God of second chances. And God gave us a new year as a second chance. Therefore, let us become a gracious people of second chances for one another. And less than 12 hours later, after morning grocery shopping and preparing a delicious New Year's Day breakfast, I failed to be a man of second chance to my wife. So we argued and I lost temper. And my New Year's resolution was uh, brutally crushed and now is on the crutch. What we need for the New Year is more than resolution. What we really need first for the New Year is a recollection. Recollection. Not just a resolution. If a resolution is writing a check, recollection is actually account balance. What we remember matters far more than what we resolve. Actually, what we make, what we resolve comes from what we remember. So today I want to share with you the most blessed recollection in the Bible so that we can make a New Year's resolution properly and confidently for God's glory 2021. And I find the most blessed recollection in the Bible from 1 Peter chapter 1. And it is an interesting fact that last Sunday, we studied the most blessed prayer from Paul's final benediction in 2 Corinthians. And today, 
we will study the most blessed recollection from Peter's salutation. As you will see, both apostles, Peter and Paul, their prayers and greetings share the same Trinitarian frame, and we can feel their pastoral love and heartwarming best wishes for their readers. So let's turn to our passage today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 12. And I'm going to ask today, we will read a little differently. Unmute, and let's read it responsibly. I want brothers to look at the screen, and brothers read odd number verses, and sisters even number verses. Are you ready? Brothers, on three we go. Peter, on, on three, one, two, three. On apostle of Jesus Christ. To God's elect, exiled, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Who have been chosen according to the sanctified work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with his blood. Praise, peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That can never perish, spoil, who through the faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of a greater worth than gold, which perish even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was appointing when he predicted the sufferings of a Messiah and the glories that would follow. By those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, set even Peter's greeting in his first letter is one of the richest salutations to open a letter in the New Testament. It contains both pastoral warmth and the theological depth. 
This salutation was so eloquent and deep that some scholars doubt Peter's authorship of this letter. They argue that 1 Peter has a, such a beautiful, broad, and profound theology for fishermen to write. Well, Peter was a fisherman for sure, but he was a fisherman who became a disciple of Jesus and was trained by Jesus for three years. For me, you know, uh, three years with Jesus is the best theological training one can have. And we already know from Acts chapter 2 what Peter was capable of. When challenge arose to explain fulfillment of God's promise of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached his first sermon on the spot and his impromptu, unprepared sermon converted 3,000 people. And also, the time when Peter wrote this letter was Peter was old and therefore mature as an apostle. According to New Testament scholars, Peter's first two letters were written in uh, AD or CE uh, 61 to 62, just a couple years before AD 64. And AD 64 is a very dreadful year because that's when Nero burned Rome and blamed the Christians. And then he led the persecution of so many Christians, including the crucifixion of Peter. So this letter was also a very appointing letter. So here is a Peter. Although Paul was called to be apostle of Gentiles and the Peter is a call to be apostle for the Jews initially, one thing we notice is at the end, Peter also served both Jews and Gentiles. Because today, people that he wrote his letter was not a Jew, it was a Gentiles. Gentiles in, the, uh, in the, uh, today's uh, Turkey. So in this sense, Peter was also faithful to Christ's great commission to make disciples of all nations. And here, Peter greeted Gentile Christians with uh, two important terms. That is, elects and exiles. And that's what the recollection is all about. I want us to remember, we are God's elect and exiles. Both of these terms describe the identity of a Jewish people in the Old Testament. And the elect and exiles are interrelated terms to describe Christian identity and life. Elect define our relationship with God, whereas exile determined our relationship with the world. So elect signify, signifies vertical relationship, whereas exile is a horizontal relationship. Together, elect and exile show us the purpose of a Christian life, as well as our post and position in the world. So today I want us to recollect, recollect and reflect on these two important terms of our identity and their implication. So first we'll talk about elect. Peter said, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm writing this to God's elect. When you hear the word elect, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? Many Christians immediately 
think elect in the matrix of a Calvinistic predestination or Armenian free will. This, uh, you know, uh, almost uh, common, you know, debate uh, among Christians about the predestination versus free will or Calvinist versus Armenian theology. That kind of comes to our mind when we hear the word elect. And both groups claim the meaning of a God's elect for their own view. You know, within Calvinism, for instance, God predestines the elect for salvation and the reprobate, those who are not elected for salvation, for damnation. So, Calvin wrote this in his famous uh, uh, Christian Institute. This is what Calvin said about election. Uh, by predestination, do we have that quote? By predestination, we mean, okay, no quote, okay. By predestination, we mean the eternal decree of God by which we determine, uh, God determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man. And pay attention here. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life and others to eternal damnation. In other words, according to Calvin, God chooses some for salvation and rest he turns over to rebellion of their sinful ways. So election from this perspective is an unconditional, not in the usual sense of an unconditional grace. We're talking about different kind of unconditional. Unconditional in the sense of a mystery, unknowability, a completely dark area that no human can see. And uh, yeah, unconditional grace that we usually use is a more like a God's universal love for the everybody. Calvin didn't use unconditional in that sense. Very particular, very individualistic, very mysterious. And I want to say one thing clear. John Calvin is to be respected greatly as a contextual theologian. And every theologian is a contextual. Every theologian must be valued based on their context. And John Calvin did a great service as a contextual theologian in 16th century in the uh, France and Germany, in, in, the, in the Central Europe. And uh, John Calvin must be noted, especially for his uh, contribution, to bring back the main focus of the Bible or theological theme, which is the uh, sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God is the main focus of the Bible. When you take a cornerstone Bible study, you will learn that. And for that, John Calvin is to be respected. Now, when it comes to predestination, John Calvin, I disagree. I think he missed the biblical meaning of predestination. He became more philosophical and logical than biblical. And Calvinistic notion of a so-called double predestination, I claim and I, I, I tell you, is not what Paul has in mind. And uh, just a couple years ago, I preached on the biblical predestination in Ephesians chapter 1. And if you look at the, our website, you might find the sermon. But when you take our constructive theology in Good Shepherd College third year, we will go through it and iron that out. 
So that's the Calvinistic view. Within the Armenian, they say God predestined those whom he foreknew. In other words, God knows in advance who will accept Christ and who will reject Christ. So according to John, uh, John Wesley, who is a known Armenian, John Wesley said, Who are predestined? None but those whom God foreknew as a believers. So election from this perspective is a conditional upon individual faith. When Paul, when Paul and Peter, all these Jewish New Testament writers talk about election, I want you to know this clearly. It's not about individual salvation. It's about vocation. It's about vocation. The logic of Israel's election in the Old Testament was not that God choosing one ethnic group in order to condemn the rest of the world or allow them to remain in the darkness, spiritual darkness. Logic of a biblical election of Israel is a God choosing a certain people and through whom he would rescue the world with the light of his love. So first, the election of Israel simply means they are the first people of God so that the rest of the humanity can come to join God. That's the biblical meaning of election. So election, biblically speaking, about vocation. God calling us to serve Him. It's not about basking in individual salvation. That's why later, I mean, that's why in the verse 2, Peter, Peter said, You have chosen according to foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and to be obedient to Christ and sprinkled with the blood, His blood. Here we notice that election involves a whole trinity. We are chosen or elected by God the Father through the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus. So election in the Bible is not a dead end, but it's a dynamic entry into Trinitarian life and divine mission. We are God's elect or chosen first by God so that we can show and share the overflowing love of God called the original grace with the rest of the world. So again, elects are, elects are not the frozen chosen, as some, you know, some people say, but elects are faithfully called ones. We are actually commissioned one. And later, in the first Peter chapter two, Paul may, I mean Peter, first uh, Peter chapter two, Peter made an amazing declaration of this election. First Peter chapter two, verse nine and 10. Look at it. You are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you are not a people, people of God, but now you are people of God. Once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So Peter here is telling that he's a Gentile Christian readers that you are Chosen people, royal priesthood, and holy nation, God's special possession. And the interesting thing about this declaration is that Peter was quoting Exodus chapter 19, where Moses delivered the, elect, the God's message of an election of Israel. So look at the, uh, uh, so let me read the uh, Exodus chapter 19. 
This is a right after God liberated Israelites, delivered them from the hand of a Pharaoh and Egyptians, and brought them to Mount Sinai. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possessions, and although whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to Israelites. When God elected Israel by delivering them from Egyptians, God told them, you are my treasure possession because you are kingdom of a priest and holy nation. What is a kingdom of a priest? What is a priest? What does a priest do? Priest mediate sinners to God. Between sinner and God. That go between. So Israel was saved to bring other people through their faithfulness to God's covenant and covenantal love. They are supposed to show to the rest of the world how wonderful and great God is and bring the people to God. Now, today, amazing thing is that Peter, once very Jewish ethnocentric apostle, do you remember Acts chapter 10 story? When God called Peter to go to Cornelius, God has to engineer so much to convince Peter that you need to go to this particular Roman centurion's house to share the gospel. Do you remember the Acts chapter 10 story? That's a young Peter. Even after resurrection of Christ, even after his ascension, even after receiving the Great Commission, Peter wasn't sharing gospel with everybody. When Jesus commissioned him to go to the everywhere in the world to the, preach the gospel, Peter thought, just preach the gospel to every Jew in every corner of the world. He never thought about Gentiles. That's why he resisted God strongly in Acts chapter 10. And years later, today, we see Peter saying, You are elect of God, just like our forefathers. Together, we are serving God. Now, have you been elected? Have you been elected? What's your experience of election? You know, when I was young, in my neighborhood, we played a soccer, uh, just typical, you know, uh, kids soccer. And the older kids, they, they just become a captain. And, uh, you know, and uh, my brother, who is uh, five years older than I, He's, a, he's good, actually. He's very athletic. So, you know, he and his friends, they picked the team. And we all gathered. And, uh, you know, he said, I picked this. I picked whoever, you know, John. And I picked, you know, Steve. I picked Philip. I picked, you know, Paul. And, you know, they go back and forth. I'm five years younger. And most of, you know, guys are older than I. So I there, very, I, I, I'm, I'm there, hoping they call my name. And I know that my brother is going to call me. Why? Not because I'm a great soccer player, but because I'm his brother, actually very annoying younger brother. If he doesn't pick me up, he will have a trouble back in home. So he picked me, you know, toward the end, he always picked me. I knew he's going to pick me. Now, 
when he elected me to the team, what do I do? You know, even though I'm younger than most players, I want to play hard as I can to prove my brother that your election, your selection of me into your team is right. I want to prove myself. Right? That is an election. Right? When somebody elected you, especially someone great like God, you don't just say, Ah, oh, I'm done. No. You want to serve more than ever. You know, right now, I heard that in D.C., we need to pray for our political leaders. That this is a busy season for lobbyists because the new president is about to come. And all the diplomats and all the lobbyists, they are in this pandemic. They are breaking all this uh, in-person meeting regular stipulation and they're making to what? To grant a special access to everybody to have some kind of special access to the power of the whole world, the president of the United States. And uh, you know, in this year, the sad thing is that a uh, departing president, he is not relinquishing his power peacefully or easily. So, and then some of the you know Republican you know uh, 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 politicians, they are also milking this uh, departing president for their foreseeable future gain. What is all they're doing? They know the privilege of being elected and called by somebody, have access to somebody in power or someone who can give them some benefit. We are elected by God Almighty. I want to say, I want to take a moment to say, there are right now three, over 3 million high school seniors right, applying to college of their dream or their choices. And they really want to be elected by, selected by their, you know, a dream college. And I want to tell you, you already are elected or received at least an invitation to the greatest community of all, that is Jesus Christ and his church. So no matter where you go, know this. Your college name is a valuable, probably just a few more years. Somebody said the value of a great college name is four years. Once you enter in the workplace, people don't, people don't care where you, what school you went. It's all about your work ethic, your competence, and your character. And I hope I house our high school seniors you apply to college with a prayer and confidence. And uh, no matter how God answers your prayer, you know who called you and who elected you already in Christ. Now, let me move on to the second point. Paul, I mean, Peter also said we are exiles. We are exiles. And here in the verse 1, he said, exiles, throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia. I spent a, a, a considerable time to see whether there is some special thing about these places. And Lee, do we have a map of these places? Can you show it to them? Yeah. So in that map, do you see Bithynia and Pontus? That's the north of uh, today's Turkey. Galatia is central Turkey. And the Asia, it called us, you know, Western Turkey, and Cappadocia is Eastern Turkey. 
Actually, Cappadocia is beautiful. So I, I, I searched, I, I actually, uh, I researched, uh, you know, uh, uh, several days uh, for the commentary and the background information, anything special about this place. And they, let me report to you, nothing special about this place. There's nothing. There's, there's, there's nothing special about this place. Okay? Now, when Peter called them exiles, this term exiles is the term that describes the Jewish people's experience. Ever since Babylonian captivity on, in 586, Jewish people being scattered all over the world. So when Peter said exiles scattered in the world, he is basically calling Gentiles that you are joining people of Israel and their experience of diaspora or dispersion or being scattered. So Peter was comparing Gentile Christians to Jewish people's experience. And here, uh, at the time of uh, Peter, there was about 1 million Jews in Palestine, and uh, there are about close to 4 million Jews outside of uh, Palestine in the rest of the Roman Empire. So some people say the first people in the world history who embodied dispersion or scattering at their constant reality was the Jewish people. And then many Jewish thinkers and even some Christian you know, theologians say Jewish people represent all the migrant, refugees, asylum seekers, marginalized and discriminated people in the world. And the Holocaust was the epitome of all anti-Semitic experience of Jewish people or Jewish exiles in history. The Holocaust by, under, uh, by Hitler and Nazis was not the first nor the last suffering of Jewish people. There were regular, mini, small Holocaust against the Jewish people or Jewish exiles during the medieval time. And uh, including the famous, infamous uh, Spanish Inquisitions. Now, the Greek word for the uh, uh, exiles is a very interesting word. It's called the uh, paraepidemus. Paraepidemus is a compound word. Para is actually para and uh, epidemus. Para means a long way. And epidemus, from which we have an epidemic, epidemus, epi means on. Demos means people, people on, or people in the area. So paraepidemos is those who are living alongside the local. That's the literal meaning of uh, exiles. People who are displaced to in certain locale to live with the rest of the local resident. So in the other New Testament you know, uh, Bibles translate this term paraepidemos as a strangers foreigners, temporary residents, sojourners, and aliens. Yes, aliens, aliens. By the way, what do we call, what's the, what's the legal term for the green card holders in America? Resident alien, resident alien. I've been resident alien for several years until I became a father of uh, two daughters. And uh, when I found out there are some stipulations for defaulting uh, resident aliens, 
which includes non-violent misdemeanor and felony. I don't know exact details, probably. Uh, Danny Son can, you know, uh, can tell us more. But point is, I can easily be deported. And that's when I decided to be naturalized. Now, even after I was naturalized, I came to Texas and people asked me about my citizenship or my identity in this country. You know, just last week, in my favorite uh, grocery uh, place, Central Market, young college students. I'm not talking about old, you know, uh, uh, Texan, but, uh, you know, young college students ask me, where are you from? <laughs> I have to go through that whole, you know, whole whatever the motion, Korea, Surprisingly, north or south? <laughs> and I usually give the answer. I'm from West Korea. Seoul is in the west of uh, Korea. So I mean, I'm from West Korea. Even back in, even when I was doing a PhD in Baylor, some of my classmates, they asked me, Paul, are you going to return to your country when you're done with the PhD? I told them that I'm not a foreign student. Maybe I speak with a foreign accent, but I'm a naturalized American citizen. So you know what, uh, what was my answer to them? My answer was, you know, in order to help Korean churches, I need to stay here because many Korean pastors come to American seminary to study and they return to Amer you know, they return and serve. And there's so, there so many wrong things about American seminary. So in order to help a Korean pastors, I need to teach in American seminary. And seriously, that's why I became a professor at Dallas Baptist University. And that's why I came to Dallas. And this is how we met. Now, New Testament scholars debate whether Peter was using this term to specific group of people in this remote region of the Roman Empire, like uh, some marginalized or lower social media economic class, Gentiles. I think Peter was employing this term theologically rather than anthropologically or socially. You know, as an as a elects of God, children of God, we have another identity in this world that is exile. We feel exiled in this world. In fact, if you are children of God and you follow Christ, you will suffer. That is a New Testament testament. New Testament you know, teaches. Peter was simply reminding us the word of Jesus that children of God, we are not of the world, even though we are in the world. So what does that mean? We shouldn't be surprised by the mistreatment and the different values of others around us. Instead, we should embrace our identity and calling. When people misunderstand us and they even give mistreat us for our faith, you know, Peter basically saying, that is a given, guys. So verse 6, what did Peter say? In all this wonderful election and living hope that God gave us, we rejoice, but now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief 
in all kinds of trials. The word suffer appears in the New Testament 88 times, and the one book that repeated the term suffer more than any book is guess what? It's our book today, 1 Peter. 1 Peter repeat the word suffer 19 times out of 88 times. For Peter, suffering is a given because we are exiles of God in this world. This world is not our home. This, home, this world, at the end, when Christ renew everything, will be our home, permanent home. But meantime, this fallen world, broken world, this is not where we find the comfort. So Peter is telling us, don't seek comfort in this world. And then when you find the conflict, don't be surprised. Actually rejoice, because that shows that who you are. Peter was actually later exhorting Christians that if you're going to suffer, you better suffer for righteousness of God instead of your own wrongdoing. Because when we suffer for the righteousness of God, we glorify God and we lead people to Christ in us. So exiles, that's who we are. And we feel exiled, we feel sort of strange in this world and we people misunderstand us. That is a given, brothers and sisters. And 2021, I want to tell, I want everybody to remember this. We will have a conflict because of a faith. If our faith doesn't bring any kind of conflict in the world, something is wrong with us. If somebody who doesn't know Christ and you know, doesn't, doesn't understand and actually oppose your commitment to Christ or any kind of your sacrifice, that is a really, you know, blessing. Brothers and sisters, following Christ means going through trials and conflicts. Do you remember once again, Paul once said, to be in Christ is to be in danger? 2021, I pray that we will, when we encounter conflict because of our faithfulness and faith in Christ, Holy Spirit will give us wisdom too. Wisdom and hope and the rejoice, rejoice, because that proves our identity. Now, final, third, third things for us to remember. Not only we are elects of God for glorious calling, and we are exiles in this world with a conflict, but third implication, the final one is this. When we are elect and when we go to exile or we are exiled, we need to remember uh, this wonderful comfort that God goes to our exile with us. God goes with us as our Emmanuel. Remember our Emmanuel. You know, Prophet Ezekiel tells us something very surprising. Prophet Ezekiel, he was a prophet at ba- you know, during the exile in Babylon. And there he was really uh, racking his brain about how in the world God's people are suffering this much in the foreign world as a POW. And God showed him several visions. And the one of the visions comes from Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18. And look at that. Then the glory of the Lord 
departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above, above the cherubim. While I watched the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of where? East gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of God of Israel was above them. When Israel went to exile, God showed Ezekiel that God also went to exile with Israel. And the glory of God departed from temple in Jerusalem. But where did it go? What's the direction? East gate. Glory of God went to east. Why east? Because Babylon was located east of Jerusalem. This is how Ezekiel was comforted that God came to exile with us. When God was a, uh, God was God sent His people to exile. Guess what? God accompanied them. You know, people talk about emptiness, and that this year I'm expecting an emptiness. Our youngest one going to college. But anybody who experiences emptiness, you know, your body might not follow but your heart and prayer follow your children. Don't you? You know, I remember my oldest two when they went to college. I prayed for them more, when, more than when they were at home. Actually, you know, being at home, I forget about them. But when they're gone, I remember them. This is a, you know, paradox of a parenthood. So, you know, yeah. So in exile, guess what? We are embraced by God who elected us and who are journeying with us as Emmanuel. And actually, according to biblical uh, uh, Old Testament scholars, during the exile, God educated Israel. How? Major part of Old Testament, such as the Torah, the Law of Moses, the five, first five books, and the uh, uh, first part of the prophet Nebim, or you know, former prophet, they are all compiled and written during this time. That's the third and final conclusion of this study today. We are embraced by triune God and engaged to engage with God in our exile. So Peter was saying that we are chosen according to full knowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the uh, uh, the Spirit and to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. What does it mean by the full knowledge of God the Father? Basically, the biblical writer is saying that God knows everything and nothing is evades God's attention. Everything is under God's control. Today, at the end, we're going to sing uh, our dedication song, Ancient of the Days. You know, ancient people, when they talk about God, they talk about how old their God is. Ancient people have uh, this kind of common understanding about the truth. That is, the older the truth is, the better the truth. Today, we, are, we, we like the new stuff, right? What is a new iPhone? What is a new car? What is a new Tesla? New, new, new. We like a new. Ancient people, when it comes to truth, they like old. Why? Old truth means proven truth. New truth means unproven. Ancient of days means God has proven faithful and good and great in the past, and He will continue to be so in our present and the future. That's, 
So full knowledge of God, full knowledge of God the Father means we can, we can have confidence in God. And sanctifying work of the Spirit. We are not sanctifying that doesn't mean that we just become a goody tissue, you know, Christians. No. The word sanctifying is actually temple language. It means that God set us apart for His special purpose. We are being a temple of God together. As all we interact with the Holy Spirit, together in the house church and together as a church, we have become a temple of God to this world. And ultimately, we are obeying Jesus. Our ultimate goal in life is individually and respectively, we becoming a little Christ to people around us. This is what Peter was talking about. We are elects of God and we are exiles of God in this world, but we are engaged, we are embraced, we are expanding kingdom of God together with the triune God. Whole triune God is working with us. And that's why, look at the last verse today, verse 12. Peter said, it was revealed to them, the prophet, that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke about things that have been, have not been told, you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels who were long to look for these things. You know what Peter is talking about here is this. Prophets of the Old Testament, they were, everything they are talking about is fulfilled in our life because they are talking about Christ as a great redemptive work. So end point of a prophecy is done and the you are the proof of the end point. And here comes the, the, here comes the great world Christian Peter. Peter used to be very mono-ethnic Jew. Now he become, became a global Christian. He said, not us. The Jew are not the end point. Gentile, you are the end point of the gospel. And the, what we receive from God, it's what angels dying to see. Angels, they were in eternity, they are waiting for this moment. This is a New Testament understanding of the last days. Dear brothers and sisters, know this clearly. Those of you who took a cornerstone, remember once again, we are living the last stage of God's redemptive history. We are living in the last days. Not because of a pandemic, not because of a, you know, end is near. And came already 2,000 years of Christ. Through Christ, we received the full perfect revelation of God. We don't, have, we don't have a doubt about God's will. Yes, problem with the Calvin is that he, when he makes the God's will to save a human being, is very mysterious, very particular and individualistic. He misses the whole point of the Bible again. Bible said it's very clear. God wants all men to be saved and come to know the knowledge of salvation. That is our God. That's why Christ came. Christ died for all. Anybody can come into the Christ. That is simple biblical message. And this is the end point of the story. And to that, God called us. For that, we will experience any hardship with a, with a pride and gratitude. Forest. Who are we? We are elect and exiles of God. Let us encourage one another. 
as a God's elect and exiles in this world. Let's pray.